Jesus. We all want it, but what can that word mean? What do we imagine we're seeking as we spend much of our time and effort in pursuit of happiness? Welcome to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. We're listening to Happy Alone by St. Seneca. Tonight, Selling Happiness, the fifth episode in our series, The Way of Neoliberalism, exploring the pervasive ideology that informs the way we think about politics, our livelihoods, ourselves, and yes, even happiness. We're joined tonight by Will Davies, author of The Happiness Industry, a critical history of the concept and of the forces that have shaped our understanding of it. In our first segment, we begin with historical definitions, specifically Aristotle's science of happiness as a kind of active fulfillment that comes through one's participation in ethical public life, which he termed politics. Neoliberalism, in stark contrast, operates toward the disenchantment of politics, its replacement being the pursuit of a personal economic definition of what's good or bad. Davies finds the beginnings of this version of happiness with the English father of utilitarianism, Jeremy Bentham. His stripped-down pleasure-or-pain version of ethics became fertile ground for entire sciences and industries of happiness that simplify the good life into atomized systems of inputs and outputs and encourage each of us to look inward or look online, to look anywhere but the actual circumstances of our political economic world, to find our own little bit of happiness. And now, Selling Happiness with Will Davies. Thank you, and welcome to Interchange, Will Davies. Hello. <laughs> so uh, uh, let's uh, let's do this before we jump into happiness, though. You've got uh, uh, your previous book, I guess. Let's lay the groundwork on neoliberalism and politics. So in your Limits of Neoliberalism, Authority, Sovereignty, and the Logic of Competition, you open the book with a chapter called The Disenchantment of Politics. Uh, what do you mean by that? What I'm talking about is the what I would argue is a, a deliberate agenda uh, developed by uh, various intellectuals over the course of the 20th century to try and push uh, economic analysis into the political sphere. Uh, I guess one of the more obvious examples of that would be what's called public choice theory, which is a, uh, a field of political science from the post-war period onwards, which looks at all political behavior as economically motivated, whether that be the behavior of, of legislators or voters uh, or leaders. Um, and so it, it's, it's in a sense, it's, a, it's an attempt to strip out the distinctive political nature of, of political activity or governmental activity or democratic um, engagement and to see it in the same way that uh, that market activity is is understood as being self-interested, calculated and so on. Um, and the reason I'm interested in that is that one of the things I argue in that book, The Limits of Neoliberalism, is that part of the motivation behind neoliberal reforms and neoliberal ideas going the whole way back to the 1930s is a fear of what politics can, how it can work, how it can um, uh, seduce people, how it can um, create uh, its own forms of mysticism, its own forms of kind of over-exuberance and so on, um, and a belief that the uh, rationality of the marketplace and of business is a safer basis on which to organize social, economic, but also political life. So 
one way of understanding neoliberalism is as a form of what some scholars have called economic imperialism, uh, the pushing of economic analysis and economic rationality into into all areas of life, so that even you know, even cuddling your child could be seen as an investment in the future in the in the future value of their capital in the labour market because of what's now known about the effect of you know uh, human warmth on brain development at early ages or something like that. Now this is obviously a very cynical. Uh, view of of social relations and political relations, but you could also argue, as we as we look at the rise of, of new forms of populism and uh, and and political reaction, you could also say that you know some of what the neoliberals were uh, arguing all along, um, you know, some of those lessons need to be kept in mind today. Well, the uh, that, that is disenchanting, I suppose. I wondered about the word disenchantment in the first place, or how how I am enchanted with politics as well. But uh, the uh, what uh, Terry Eagleton wrote actually in a review of the uh, your book, The Happiness Industry, he says when Aristotle speaks of a science of well-being, he gives it the name of politics. Uh, so politics and well-being are deeply linked in Western culture, and yet in a very short period of time, it seems recently that idea has kind of been turned on its head. In the neoliberal world, I suppose. Yes. So what I mean interests me specifically about the science of happiness and of well-being is the way in which these concepts that have some lingering ethical or or even political content have, have had that stripped out of them in just the way that, that that Terry Eagleton quote suggests. And it's the case that for Aristotle, the very purpose of a human life was what he called eudaimonia, which is sometimes translates into happiness, but it means something closer to, to, to flourishing um, or um, fulfillment. But it's also a, a practical state of being. It's not just something that kind of goes off in your brain in the way that if you were to, you know, take narcotics, you might suddenly get a kind of rush of, of some kind of pleasure. Uh, eudaimonia is something that you do as much as something that you you feel. Um, and uh, for Aristotle, it was the, that's, that is how human beings reach their ultimate state of, of purpose, their, their ultimate purpose. And it was something that is achieved through the practice of political engagement, through engaging in, in, in debate about the nature of the good life. So it's not just enough to just to kind of live a good life right. as if you can learn it from a manual. You have to kind of deliberate it and, and, and work it out. Well, let's let's talk about that a, a second then, because, I, again, I think it's one of those terms that we we get lost in or people don't know quite how to define or what it means even to say politics these days, mm -hmm. right? So it's a, a contentious uh, arena politics. And at the same time, what we term political or how we see politics uh, on a day-to-day basis uh, are, are things I don't think we quite know what we mean when we say it. So if you say well-being is politics or well -be a science of well-being is politics, and you're, you're describing it as a, as a culture in which we get together and we, and we try to argue or talk about what it means to have a good life or flourish as well or have a culture that organizes us in such a way to have well-being, and that's political, then what we have today doesn't seem politics at all. Well, right. I mean, um, but Aristotle's idea of politics was of a was of democratic politics. Aristotle described human beings, and he meant um, a rather limited subset of sure, human beings, sure. men, and he meant slave owning men. Um, uh, but he called um, these men zoon politikon, political animals, um, and 
the reason he said that was that he identified two features of human beings that um, other animals don't have. And one of them is that they speak. Uh, and the other one is that they make um, ethical value judgments. And that if you put those two things together, you have the, the phenomenon of ethical deliberation, which maybe there's never been a, a perfect society where people kind of, you know, work out what should be done in every situation or how every society should be governed purely on the basis of ethical deliberation. But this this ideal has certainly um, inspired or haunted um, Western societies off and on pretty much ever since mm. Aristotle was, was arguing this um, over 2000 years ago. And it recurs in, I suppose, in, in, in more modern democratic ideals of politics um, and de Tocqueville, when he visited in America in the early 19th century, he saw something like that with some serious misgivings he had as well, but of a, of, of a sort of town square uh, vision of, of the Republic. Yeah. Of at the same at the same time, having a, a P.T. Barnum, uh, you know, feel to that exact space as well. Right. right? So this is really uh, what I find is fascinating, too. And, and your book kind of walks us through uh, the history of happiness as an ideal from Jeremy Bentham and utility forward. And I think that what you just talked about there with Aristotle kind of um, encapsulates the the whole of where you go through the book, right? Ethical deliberation is something that's gone away in many yeah. ways, and, and intentionally so, if you think about it in terms of creating this I guess we'll call it a science, but we put it in, in scare quotes all the time, right? It's not not exactly a science, but a science of happiness that that seeks to sort of remove the both the ethical and the deliberation in some sense, right? To set it outside on in some other place. But you talk about um, you open the book uh, with Nietzsche's assertion in Twilight of, of the Idols that man does not strive for happiness; only the Englishman does that. And some somewhat by I guess hereditary relation, the American must do it as well. Uh, it's one particular. Englishman Jeremy Bentham, who seems to be the prime striver and progenitor of this happiness industry. Yes, I mean Bentham is a is a key figure in all of this, um, and Bentham, who actually was later quite a hero to to some American neoliberals, a lot of the the Chicago school in the post war period were um, huge fans of Jeremy Bentham, and I think there's, that tells us something, which maybe we can come back to. But I think. Um, Bentham looked at the language of, of moral philosophy and the language of politics and of questions of justice as a series of nonsense. Um, that um, And he was trained as a lawyer, but he, whenever he heard lawyers talking about um, justice and rights and the public interest and fairness and so on, he thought all these, lang these words didn't really refer to anything. He, he called it the tyranny of sounds, that moral language leads us astray because unlike scientific language, which he witnessed in, in chemistry and physics and biology and the the, the the blossoming natural sciences of the of the late 18th century, he looked at, at the moral language and he saw that it was founded in nothing at all. There was no rigor, there was no discipline to how moral language was used and that this was dangerous. And this was as dangerous on the progressive, radical, republican left as it was on the conservative, theological right because what both sides were, were suffering from was the delusions of metaphysics. So um, revolutionaries would go around talking about human rights, which, you know, show me a human right. <laughs> well, what, what does it consist of? How do I know if it exists or not? I mean, Bentham would say this language, he called it nonsense upon stilts, is what he, he called it. <laughs> um, and um, uh, so he thought that what was needed to save morality and to save the idea of justice was some kind of empirical science analogous to that of the of the natural sciences. And that, that science w was the science of pleasure and pain. Which uh, on which ideas of happiness and unhappiness were founded. So for Bentham, really, the only way that ethics could mean anything at all was if it was about 
understanding the various activities and phenomena in society which causes pleasure and pain and the legitimate public decisions were those which would um, increase the aggregate amount of pleasure in society and illegitimate ones would be those which reduce the aggregate amount of pleasure in society. Um, and for this reason, he was interested in things like punishment, because if you could use punishment in a scientific way, you could sort of ward people away from 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 bad activities towards positive activities. Um, he was also, you know, a fan of uh, of, of sexual freedoms um, in a way that was completely out of keeping with his time, because for, for the obvious reason that, you know, if, if things are giving people pleasure and not causing pain, why would you discriminate against them? So, I mean, he was certainly very, very consistent in what he what he believed, but he also uh, was fiercely sceptical of the, the capacity of, of, of political discourse or moral discourse to uh, achieve consensus. He believed that things needed to be founded much more in, in a science of, of human behavior and of feelings. And in a way, you know, fast forward 220 years and you're in, the, in a kind of Silicon Valley utopia slash dystopia of, of, of kind of wearable technology plus, wow. uh, you know, behaviorist nudges and that sort of stuff. And right. I mean, one of the things I'm arguing in the book is that, is that the Bentham's vision of a, of a world where all of our activity is coordinated on the basis of inputs and outputs to our bodies is is becoming realized much more than I think Bentham could have imagined. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest tonight is Will Davies, author of The Happiness Industry, How the Government and Big Business Sold Us Well-Being. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it is striking the way that we're inhabiting that person's, like, science fiction mind i suppose even though we you know we imagine it as a as a man dedicated to uh, as you say empiricism or data perhaps and data is one of the the bugbears here that we have to approach data if you're going to have a, a social world that is managed and it's large as they all become large you have to uh, as you say reduce and limit and create these ways in which we can manage the strangenesses of humanity, which the Bentham wanted to do away with, and I suppose most people who who operate in this way want to do away with as well, because um, we just have like buttons, we don't have unlike buttons. Now we've got emoji type things on Facebook, but uh, you can still only interpret them as how you feel exactly like the person who posted the thing. You're sad or angry or mad about it, but you agree with it. But yeah. that's how you feel about it. So, I mean, that obviously those the social media is a, is a new way in which our, our emotions can be. I think that the term which is literally used is, is harvested oh. um, by a lot of the people in what's called affective computing is oh, the, the harvesting of emotions. Um, as if that these are sort of like grain that grow across society. Someone would sort of come along with a combine harvester. And, let and me ask of- you, let me ask you right at that point, though, right? So people are involved in these processes, right? People make these things happen. And if you can sit down at your work and say, I'm going to harvest emotions, <laughs> what ha- I mean, what have you thought about your life up at that point? I mean, where do you come from as the person who sits? This is a, the problem I get into all the time. And I want to, I don't necessarily want to assi- assign blame, but I do want to assign agency to people who sit down and do certain things. It's why I always get annoyed with the idea of, uh, you know, a chemist who goes to work at Dow or Pfizer or Monsanto and sits down and just does their little bitty thing. And it, you know, it it leads to a bad big thing frequently. (laughs) But, you know, the same thing happens here. Like we are like we promote it culturally, we promote it economically. It's a part of the the way we live. So I can sit down in front of my computer and talk about harvesting your emotion. 
uh, Will Davies. I'm going to harvest what you're thinking right now. I don't care about Will Davies. And I, but there's a part of that that's just really, really, really strange and monstrous in my own thinking. It's just... Well, I suppose there's a, there's a sort of um, a kind of modern exuberance that goes with a lot of this stuff. So mm. in that instance, it begins because some neuroscientist, an entrepreneurial neuroscientist who... <laughs> Reckons that he can do TED right. talks, basically, right. um, and has, has got credentials as a neuroscientist, right. Right. Um, right. Uh, and has published in neuroscientific journals. So I'm not. And this isn't to dismiss the, the scientific credentials, but mm. is a bit more entrepreneurial than some, and can and can give TED talks and quite fancies a fifty thousand dollar speaker fee to go after <laughs> sure, sure. companies right. and sort of stuff. Um, goes hits the road and starts saying. I know what goes on in your brain and I know why you feel like this when you see a picture of a little lamb and why you feel like this when you see a picture of a scary witch or whatever it might be. Um, and there's a lot of people in that TED Talk audience or in that um, Harvard Business School um, uh, MBA program or whatever it might be. Um, and those people are excited. I mean, they are not they're not cynics. They're, I mean, OK, they want to get rich, but they're excited. They think, you know, this is a new scientific frontier, just as the one that Frederick Taylor was crossing in 1890 when he first started doing time and motion studies inside um, pig iron factories or the one that um, Toyota was doing when it first redesigned um, production lines in the 1960s or whatever. So they see this as the new frontier and it's exciting. So it's the same. I think it has a it draws on a similar kind of modernist exuberance that, that has that has driven a lot of science and industry for, for hundreds of years. Um, but I think that it, it also has a there's a sort of a leap of credulity where the moment where you know that neuroscientist says and i know what an emotion is because i can see it in the fmri scan right, right. there's a there's a complete shortage of not just philosophical imagination because not everyone's a philosopher and i wouldn't expect everyone to kind of suddenly start thinking about kind of the problem of other minds and so on but there's a kind of shortage of human imagination in some ways because it sort of it, what it leaps over in its desperation to get to kind of product development and, and revenue is the question of well, hang on a sec. If that's what an emotion is, then what does that mean a human is? And if that means that's what a human is, then what the hell am I doing kind of when I, you know, the way I raise my kids or the way I interact with my neighbors or the way I, you know, ring my mum to find out if she's okay on a Sunday night or whatever, you know. So human beings tend to have all sorts of aspects of their lives that suggest that they value things in certain ways, but somehow they manage to park those when they set about doing science, business, strategy, engineering, all that sort of stuff. And I think that, again, to go back to what Max Weber argued about this back in the early 20th century, uh, I mean, in his lecture, Science as a Vocation, um, he talked about how modern science was ultimately ha was kind of empty of any moral meaning, but that scientists have to have, they still have to have their own private reasons for being scientists. It's just those private reasons cannot inform the way they go about doing their science. Um, and I think that everybody in, in the 21st century now, even those who are not involved in <laughs> emotion harvesting and product development, I mean, I think that we all now have to find our, our meaning from somewhere, but that it's become a very, very private um, phenomenon. And it might be you go to a self-help book, or it might be that you watch motivational videos, or it might be that you go to church or, or whatever. I think that people um, seek their, their meaning from, from somewhere. It's just that they no longer find it quite so much from common activities or from or from the public sphere. Now, it may be that now they're finding it from the likes of Donald Trump or in, in Britain from uh, populist movements on the left and the right. So it may be that politics is, is now 
you know, come back to the fore on that front, which I think suggests to me that in some ways the limits of this disenchantment, this technocratic project are being reached and they're being reached in ways that are uh, ugly and uh, also sometimes less ugly. Um, but there is something I think we're, we're discovering that, that there's a limit to how much yeah. human beings will allow uh, their common world to be reduced to, to data and to economics. Right. It's time for a break. You're listening to Make It Happy by Lyle Lovett. More on the way of neoliberalism, selling happiness with Will Davies, right after this. Slap my baby on and make it happy. Slap my baby on and make it fun. Slap my baby on and make it happy. I'm a happy son of a gun. Slap my baby on it, make it happy. Slap my baby on it, make it fun. Slap my baby on it, make it happy. I'm a happy son of a gun. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight it's our fifth episode in our series, The Way of Neoliberalism, Selling Happiness. Our guest is Will Davies, author of The Happiness Industry. In our next segment, we continue our look at the apolitical, individualized concept of happiness and positive psychology, one of the systems of thought that promote the pursuit of that idea. From John B. Watson's 1913 so-called Behaviorist Manifesto, through to current happiness guru Martin Seligman's ideas about learned helplessness, proselytizers and practitioners have put the emphasis on external behavior of people and their reactions on given situations rather than the internal mental state of those people. With the focus on quantifiable objective measurement, happiness morphs from an unorthodox aspirational idea into a mainstream science of human management spawning an industry guiding individuals to take responsibility for and cope with an unhappy life rather than paying attention to, much less taking action to change, social, economic, and institutional circumstances contributing to their unhappiness. Well, I think you, you know, you walk through again at this particular period in life, the, you know, the idea of fragmenting the self, it generally, as you go into the, the factory world, if you go into industrialization, you begin to, to fragment your day, fragment yourself, fragment your activities, uh, give value to this and at this time of day and value to that at that time of day and how we begin to have to um, break ourselves apart in order to live. And then I think your point is made that uh, happiness in some sense, the happiness industry in particular, seems to walk in and say, we have to figure out a way for people to be happy that their lives stink. You know, what we've created is not a great way to live. It's not a great way to be. It's not a great way to to care about each other, to care about your neighbor, to care. You know, we're we're just little pieces doing these things. So I can see the impulse to want to have an idea about how to make people less unhappy 
because their world is not great. And uh, one of the points you make throughout is that you need to look out at the world and see that the world is affecting you, that the creation of this world we live in is from outside of you. And people instead are telling you to fix yourself. To yeah. look into you and realize why you're such a crybaby, you need to fix that crybaby aspect of you, right? That's the positive psychologist yeah. perspective, right? you yeah. got to figure out how to deal with your life. It's all up to you to be happy. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things here is when the happiness um, agenda began, uh, I mean, you can trace it back. There were various historical starting points for this. So one of them, which I've already mentioned, is Bentham. Another one is behaviorism in the at the turn of the 20th century. But another one would be the rise of, of humanistic psychology in mm. the 1950s and 1960s. Um, and this is where psychologists, people like Maslow and others, and Carl Rogers became interested in human flourishing and human growth. And this fed into the counterculture and into the 1960s. And this was this was quite a political set of ideals because it was partly about trying to release people from the constraints of a kind of 1950s organization man um, vision of society, of bureaucracy and so on. So it was very much in keeping with the kind of 60s ideal of, of human self-government yeah. and so it's on. where Don Draper goes to Est. Right, yeah. Um, and, I mean, it's also the time when uh, Martin Seligman, who became the right. main figure in positive psychology, he also started studying depression around this time as well, uh, with quite a different set of um, presuppositions and so on, and, and less of a, a perhaps less uh, idealistically. Um, but I suppose that the interesting thing is that a lot of the, the, the instincts behind that, now I don't want to, you know, I'm not a hippie, I don't want to sort of get... <laughs> the 1960s and so on i think it's 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 <laughs> much, you know but um but i think that uh, where a lot of that agenda went was also into feminism mm. of looking at the way in which uh you know trying to question the emphasis on gdp as a measure of the economy by pointing out that actually a lot of the value that created in society is, is, is unpaid work by women right. in the private sphere it also went into environmentalism of saying that um, you know, when you're obsessed with economic growth and with, with productivity, that you're doing all of this harm, you're not even measuring to the natural environment and so on. So there were these sort of quite political um, instincts behind the um, aspiration to understand, measure and promote happiness. Um, and they were, they operated at the level of the collective and they had potential implications for public policy. And they still do have political implications for public policy. You know, you could say all sorts of things you could do in relation to tax rates, in relation to uh, the use of, of cars, in relation to the regulation of public property and public space that could have a positive effect on people's happiness at a, at a collective level. But the, as uh, over the kind of 50 years since, what the story of what happened all of that was that as, peop- as the, the signs of happiness became more and more uh, clear cut, as it became more, um, uh, more of an orthodoxy, it developed its own journals, it developed its own experts and gurus and so on. It really infiltrated economics from the 1990s onwards. Um, positive psychology was the fastest growing field of American psychology um, by the 1990s. And Martin Seligman became the president of the American uh, Psychological Association. Um, by that point, suddenly it became, you know, in terms of the question, well, what do you do about all of this happiness research? Well, changing society turns out to be a hell of a lot harder than changing individual behavior, such as, you know, oh, spend more time near some green space or um, remember to be grateful to people a bit more or remember to notice that it's not raining or, you know, keep it going. <laughs> 
do diary and um, you know eat your five root and veg a day or uh, all this sort of thing. Uh, these sorts of things, and I try in my book not to be scathing about this because I, at the same time, I realise that there is a lot of distress out there, and I realise that some people don't have anywhere else to turn. If, you know, if a self-help guru tells them this is going to help you, it's not. It's not my job as a as a cultural critic to say that person's wrong. But at the same time, I feel that the the rise of these individualised medicalized approaches to happiness has gone um, absolutely in tandem with the decline of of socialized political approaches to to some similar problems so in, in some ways i have a kind of ambivalent uh, relationship to some of the the happiness science because uh, you know in, in some ways doing it differently might actually be a good thing i mean if we could think rather than uh, kind of how many steps should i be taking every day in order right. to improve if we could say, well, how would you redesign the, the curriculum in schools? How much testing would there be? Probably rather a lot less testing, actually, because, you know, in, my, in, in Britain, we, we start testing our children from the age of five at times when it just creates anxiety. Sure. And this is because we're terrified about, you know, the, their productivity as adults and so on. I mean, you know, this is kind of crazy stuff that no one ever joins up with the fact that, oh, and we've got a mental health crisis amongst teenagers. It's like, well, stop treating schools like factories in some global race against China and start realizing that education can have some other value other than the uh, potential payoff um, further down the line. So there are things that could be done. And it, you know, if you really cared about happiness, you would do some of these things. But it's almost like happiness is actually, you know, it's, a, it's become a, a form of behavioral management and a form of and a particular uh, area of, of medicine. Yeah. Um, not actually a, a, an ethical problem at all in, in the way most of these experts treat it. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest tonight is Will Davies, author of The Happiness Industry, How the Government and Big Business Sold Us Well-Being. Yeah, and you make this point throughout, too. It's, uh, again, if we're talking social management, we're not talking about your flourishing. We're not talking about well-being. We're talking about someone's ability to convince you to keep doing the thing you're doing so they can keep doing the thing they're doing. So it's interesting. I didn't I didn't realize, or maybe I missed it in the book, but I think at the beginning you talk about uh, John B. Watson, that's right. He becomes the president of the APA, American Psychological Association, in 1915. You're, you make the point that this is kind of uh, amazing as he'd not done any research at all uh, with humans, but was an animal behaviorist, I suppose, a si animal psychologist of some sort. And that Seligman, uh, so we're bookending in some sense, right? Seligman himself is something of an animal psychologist. His initial work is with uh, dogs and, and how dogs, if you keep shocking them over and over, kind of give up. <laughs> so, which I can't say seems to me some great insight into, you know, the psychology of anything, right? But yeah, uh, yeah. You know, the goal is if, if you can continue to get beat and beat and beat day after day and we can teach you how to get up and keep getting up and find a way to make yourself responsible for the beating and then responsible for feeling better about the beating, then that's a perfect world for the people that are beating you. Yes. Well, it's uh, it's a it's a it's removing the whole question of ethics from. Oh, amen. Amen. Yeah. So. Um, so it's it's treating the question of, of power, of authority, of decision making as as a purely technical or uh, instrumental problem of um, how to render the likely outcomes um, as predictable and optimal. Um, and 
I think this is something that is there in Bentham. I mean, Bentham wasn't someone who talked, he wasn't, the word behaviorism didn't exist, but ultimately I think Bentham's vision, although he had a, had a kind of a theory of psychology, it was such a stripped down one that really it was a more a theory of, of control and, and prediction really, which is what Watson turned psychology in, the, in its behaviorist guise into a science of, of human control and, and prediction. Um, of of the outcome of, of certain types of intervention. Well, you make that uh, point. The, I mean, the point that his he wanted to work in tandem with people who could make use of that information as well. Sure. I yeah. mean, so Watson. I mean, he. Uh, I mean, he had this ideal of making psychology what he called the master science of American society. That it could um, provide uh, people, whether they be lawmakers or managers or um, local public policymakers or educators, it could provide them with this um, type of data that was already prepared for their decision-making needs so that those people in positions of power need to be armed with forms of evidence which will inform them and will guide them towards the optimal decision. Now, optimal is obviously a, a kind of <laughs> right. term because optimal for whom? Right. Uh, and that really should be an ethical question, but I mean, it, it tends not to be. It's, uh, it tends to be something that has already been preordained by you know, it might be optimal for, for shareholders or or for the state or, or something. But um, so, yes, he, he had an ideal and, and part of his sort of sales pitch for behavioral psychology as a as a field of psychology, because, as you say, he I mean, he'd come into psychology by by studying uh, animals. And um, he was implying that um, there was nothing that, that was distinctive about human psychology. Uh, which I suppose is another way to go back to what I was saying about Aristotle earlier is also another way of saying there was nothing that important about human language because right, right. and he said that well I mean he did sort of he I mean psychologists since the birth of what we now recognize as modern psychology by Wilhelm Wundt in Leipzig in the um, 1870s psychologists had used what what they called introspection um, and also you know, asking people questions about when they uh, were conscious of certain things and so on. So there was a sort of reliance on the fact that humans had to draw on their own powers of either self-understanding or, or mutual understanding was kind of central to how psychology worked. Now, for someone like Watson and the behaviorists, this was something to be eliminated because it was much better to observe a reaction um, than it was to have to consult someone and say what they thought of something or how, they, how something felt or how they experienced something. So you have to try and eliminate the, the dialogue, you eliminate the language, and you turn things into a form of observation, just as if you were studying, um, you know, a Petri dish with some kind of um, amoeba on it or right. something. Well, um, you go further here. What, what social media now does actually right. enable, right. Or, or the internet things or smart cities, right. all this sort of stuff right. that, that Silicon Valley chucks at us uh, and is made basically unavoidable. I mean, unless you go off grid, I mean, you are now... Right. Um, you know, just by when I go home this evening, I'm going to use a, a digital smart card to get on the right. on the train. I'm going to have my phone will be on. So yeah. I mean, I am part of a of a grid of observation, yeah. which unlike the grids of observation of the Cold War, which which were you know sort of image of, of being kind of listened in on by the CIA, right. it's a completely different type of surveillance now. It's now right. the fact is I am part of a of a population uh, whose overall movements is right. being kind of studied, tracked, analysed in an effort to try and understand them. Yeah. It's time for another break. You're listening to Devo's Whip It. Ostensibly a response to Norman Vincent Peale's best-selling The Power of Positive Thinking. More with Will Davies on the happiness industry when Interchange returns on WFHB. Correct and will. Give the 
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight, selling happiness. Will Davies on the happiness industry, an increasingly technologically driven business ideology seeking to quantify happiness in individuals and optimize it, like adjusting the pH balance in a swimming pool. To come to such a simplified happiness equation, we've seen that messy, unquantifiable human elements like language and political awareness have been stripped away whenever possible. Now the chaotic social world gets the same treatment. We'll begin with 20th century psychotherapist Jacob Moreno and his theory of sociometry, a quantitative method of measuring the social world that treats complicated human spaces as fragmented, purely egocentric transactions. What does relating to this person do for me? Moreno's model leads to social network analysis, now backed by raw 21st century computing power and platforms where individuals freely contribute their data to be automatically mined, held, and analyzed on a daily basis. Welcome to the age of Facebook, where you judge your life and self-worth in an addictive, competitive environment based on the metrics chosen by the titans of Silicon Valley. What I think is fascinating, and, I, and it continues to be the one thing that strikes me about all this, and I think is the most important thing generally, and, and you spoke to it just there, was the idea of you know eliminating language, right? The idea that uh, a human and an animal are different in uh, the sense of how they use language. Uh, you know, we can argue that other creatures obviously speak to each other in some way, but in what makes us uh, thinking beings or thinking about ourselves is we are able to say words like this is me, mine, and ours, and and, and this kinds of thing. Uh, but if you could eliminate the words altogether, you eliminate generally those unpredictable thinking spaces, right? Where language begins to generate kind of on its own sometimes, right? It's one of the ideas that we're kind of random uh, thought generators occasionally, and this is how we get into crazy spaces perhaps, but it is how we are who we are. We think through those words. And if you can reduce the human day-to-day into uh, rote, into template, into like and dislike, into uh, double plus good and double plus ungood, right? We, we don't have to do any more work to be controlled. Mm. It's there. Facebook is that controlling mechanism to, for many of us. Um, and, you know, I would like, if you don't mind, I, I really would love if you would talk a little bit about Jacob Moreno, too, just because of the, the psychology of that fella is interesting as well and how that walks us into our Facebook world itself. Yes. Um, Moreno was a, one of the earliest social psychologists in the 1920s and 1930s. And he'd actually studied a bit with Sigmund Freud in, in Vienna. But he was ultimately interested in how our, our, our social relations impact upon our own uh, well-being, our own uh, feelings. Um, and he was aware that human beings clearly are social creatures, but he didn't want to have to engage with that in, a, in the way that, say, an anthropologist might, which would be to understand groups as being um, sort of organic, self-understanding, um, evolutionary phenomena with, with traditions and rituals and so on. Um, so he, would, he managed to reduce the social world down to a question of mathematics, which is a question of, of what are the social ties that I'm embedded in. This became the, the field of what's called social network analysis. It was also, uh, you know, how we can see something like this in, in social media today. But Moreno's um, philosophy was really quite strange because he um, his understanding of the social world was that other people 
exist uh, for me in a sort of purely egocentric fashion in the sense that uh, my social world is the sort of whatever the 125 people who I interact with in, in, in a fairly regular basis or whatever it might be or the seven people who I'm uh, my kind of close friends or whatever it might be but um, as far as Moreno is concerned it's all about what comes back to the to the person center of those ties so there's a kind of egocentric vision of the social in his theory and then he developed these techniques for actually drawing maps of social networks um, of uh, and trying to apply mathematics to the study of the social world. Um, now, social network analysis in the in the years after Moreno has expanded to becoming a to become a huge field of, of American sociology and uh, economics and and psychology. Uh, but I mean, one of the limitations of social network analysis is that it's very it's incredibly uh, laborious traditionally it was anyway to, to collect all of the data about social ties because um, you know as a, as a group grows with only a few additions of extra people the amount of ties in that group grows exponentially but um, once you're all using something like the internet then that data is is self-collecting basically so um, the likes of Facebook can now uh, study our social world using a theory roughly like Jacob Moreno's um, on the basis of, of, of the data sets that accumulate on the basis of their, you know, one billion users around the world. Um, and Facebook now at the American Sociological Association annual conference, they have a bus there where they kind of go and, you know, meet and greet the young PhDs in sociology and see if they can persuade them to come and work for Facebook. Because I think it's kind of interesting because we've been through a, a long phase where sociology has been the rather sort of slightly marginalized of the, the social sciences because it's seen as being rather left-wing or rather structuralist or yeah. not having much of a business or, or policy whereas actually in a world where you can you can automatically mine data sets of of hundreds of millions of people uh, people who are who are thinking about the social in that in that more well i wouldn't say it's, it's still a mathematically reductionist view but it's nevertheless not one that is 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 necessary. You don't have to reduce it to economics in the way that a lot of, uh, of of rational choice traditions have done in the past. But I think it's um it's an approach to to social relationships which. Uh, also kind of strips out their the meaning that they have right. for people. Well, you, you point out throughout in terms of how the Facebook accrues, you know, your friend level, your friend capacity, and how you are uh, either followed by enough people. Elana Gershon, who we talked to earlier, said, you know, these are metrics that they chose to include. You know, these competitive metrics become a part of how you gauge your own being by sure. these competitive metrics. And, and it's really very easy to be very depressed <laughs> about your sure. your friend network and your, your lack of influence in the world. Sure. The, um, I mean, the, this has, it does have bad consequences for people psychologically because um, I think, I mean, there's been studies of, of the, the way in which Facebook creates vicious circles of depression because, I mean, it's, I think we can all, anyone who uses Facebook can relate to this, is that um, you see people putting up lots of photos of, of the best aspects of their lives um, and you think, well, my life's not like that. <laughs> Uh, and then the inevitable response is to, is to try right. and match them in right. some way and to say, well, you know, my life's great as well. Here's me on a beach with a sunset and right. so on. Right. And I mean, there's actually a you know, some positive psychology. One of the things which interests me about positive psychology is there are little grains of wisdom scattered across lots of um, kind of 
I don't want to say nonsense, but there's a lot of um, you know jargon and um, an ideology scattered. But it, but every now and then you get these kind of grains of wisdom. But I mean, one of the things that positive psychology says to one of its sort of mantras is don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. Mm. Um, and that's exactly what something like Facebook encourages us to do. Is right. you see all these um, images of people and you compare them to to your own inner feelings. Right. Uh, now in a way. That in itself is a is an ideological construct because this idea that there's this sort of schism between other people's outsides and your insides is partly a, a an effect of a of an over mediated society where we spend too much of our time sort of trying to forge intimate relationships with ourselves while having rather kind of distant um, spectacular right, right. relationships to to others whether it be celebrity culture and so on so yeah. I mean that's partly a, a problem of what I would call neoliberalism which is a society that becomes organised around competitions. Um, because what competitions do is they they give scores to everyone and they they rank people and they leave it to the to the losers and most people in competitions are losers um, and that's one of the reasons why competitions are, are ultimately a disastrous model for organising society. I mean they're fine for for soccer or whatever, but if you organise a whole of society into competitions, you will discover the majority of people eventually feel deeply disappointed. And they 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 and and this is the thing is that I mean no, not everyone can be the centre of attention the whole time. I mean on Facebook there are some people who seem everything seems to be working out for them and they their lives seem to to be swimmingly great, but most people are left with a feeling of of inadequacy by that right. kind of culture. Now it may be that that also works in Facebook's favour. It may be that those people then spend, you know, are drawn even more to Facebook for some sort of, you know, masochistic <laughs> desire to, to sort of, you know, gauge themselves against their peers. But yeah. um, it's the sort of cycle that we're in. <laughs> I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest tonight is Will Davies, author of The Happiness Industry, How the Government and Big Business Sold Us Well-Being. It's um, it is dizzying, and it does continue to push one towards the how do I get off this mm. you know this crazy train? Um, and it seems, as you say, it seems impossible. It's it exists everywhere. You don't you don't exist in the world unless you've got a profile. You don't exist in the world unless you've got a Twitter handle. You don't exist uh, at all, and it makes you feel that way. Even though I think generally we all would would agree that we can exists quite fine without it um mm -hmm. but you're right it's it's a constant pressure a media pressure uh even a i, I don't know how to implicate governments in these kinds of things but, mm -hmm. you know we talk about how our corporations try to create uh self uh i guess happiness indices of employees by you know giving them you know tools to measure their yep. day measure how they're happy measure who they talk to measure if they complain uh and then you know if 10 percent of them are unhappy why not just lay them off then you won't have unhappy workers anymore yeah. uh so uh you know it's hard to think of how, how to escape these things uh and you know I, again it was uh, ilana gershon who said you know what you have the choice i know it's hard to imagine you do have a choice <laughs> these days but you don't have to answer that email right away you don't you know you don't have to respond to everything right away you don't have to live in this world this way and that may be true for for people that may be true for some people but i don't know how many people can feel that way no, I mean, obviously, there's been a, a rise of, of kind of what sometimes called slow movements, you know, right, slow cooking. Right. We even have what's called slow professors in academia <laughs> now. Well, that tends to mean everybody else has to deal with their emails except me. You know, that's sort of <laughs> what I'm trying to say. To. So there's a kind of a right. there's a kind of privilege issue in there right, as well. Right, right. Um, now, I mean, I think part of what I think is needed is to is to somehow um, the word critique 
doesn't really mean criticize. It means something closer to judgment right. in, its, in its true meaning. And I think the question is how to exercise some judgment in relation to the happiness industry such that we can sort out the valuable parts of some of it from the from the manipulative parts because there are valuable parts and there's you know there are things like um, so even in, as I said even in positive psychology there are things that there are these insights that need to be kind of built on rather than just kind of left at the status of behavioral tips so when when positive psychologists say exercise empathy and exercise gratitude um, that's a good start it's not enough you can't just turn that into a sort of behavioral nudge which you kind of go oh i need to remember to be grateful today and then i'll kind of get on with everything you know looking right. at my phone um the point of that if you start to follow that logic is to start to think in a in a social um mutual ethical fashion and to and to, and to think about how to forge social relations in all of the difficulty and the occasional frustration and the ambiguity that that, that, that involves of trying to understand other people and listen to other people. Right. Um, and I mean, it's, I mean, I have to do it with my own children. I have to remember, I don't say I'm particularly brilliant at it, but I, I have to remember that, you know, I can look at my phone when they're around or I can pay them some attention and right. paying them some attention, maybe less of a sort of immediate psychological kind of kick but at the same time, it might, what well, it will, like I know it will over time, be a more fulfilling experience, but right. it can be also be frustrating and slow. So there's a sort of, some ways we do need some of the behavioral tips and the, you know, so the how-tos and the so on, so on. Otherwise, we're completely damned. If we don't, sure. if we, if we don't accept any of that, that advice or, or, or at least think about, you know, what people call digital detoxing and so on. Um, I don't think that's enough. I don't think that we can just go, oh, you know, if I have my five hours of a week without my phone, then I can get back to, you know, I'll be even more productive when I get it back. So, that's you know, right. that's, that's, right. that's right. Silicon Valley logic or meditation, all that sort of stuff. But I think at the same time, we do, unless we want to be completely hopeless and, and throw in the towel, then we at least have to think practically about both individual and collective steps. And the other thing which, you know, as I, in the book, I, I'm, I'm less cynical about is, what in Britain is called social prescribing, which is there are people who go to the doctor. It's partly because we have a, a socialized healthcare system in Britain. People go to the doctor sometimes because they're, you know, they have low level chronic mental illness. They're lonely. They have, um, you know, a, an unhealthy lifestyle and so on. And it's now possible for doctors to write them a note saying, go and join this choir or go on. Here, here's, a, here's a fishing club you can join or, you know, this sort of thing. Now, of course, that might have a another type of manipulative element or a slightly um, deceptive element potentially but yeah you have to have some hope that through social activities and social institutions i mean that obviously that's not enough to frighten mark zuckerberg but, <laughs> right. but, but i mean i think you have to at least try and spot the the small slivers of of what alternatives might at least start by looking like um otherwise you're in a world where you think well you might as well just throw in the towel and, and turn yourself into a sort of cyborg of the sort yeah well i think that's the problem this series and and the problem that we end up getting into talking about these things i have a um, you know i talk to my kids all the time because you know they have their smartphones and you know it's not something i've been able to say no to myself and and you know we have conversations about uh, what well, generally about gambling we have a, a, in terms of it being the the template for a lot of what you see in your technological spaces, right? Your software, the the same buttons are attempting to be pushed as you would if you went into Las Vegas and walked into the, you know, the timeless room that makes buzzes and whirs and gives you sirens and, and colors. And, and, you know, to me, you're walking around with Vegas in your palm, uh, mm. you know, and constantly getting a high by just seeing Vegas. Uh, and, that's easy. I think that's part of the problem for us, right? All these things are very easy. It's an easy little high. It's like overeating. I think maybe you talked about eating at some point as well. It's like, it's like eating. 
where mm-hmm. if you're upset or you're, you know, you get pleasures where you get them, where you can get them and you get a little pleasure in that, mm-hmm. but that bit of cake. And I get a little pleasure in that Facebook bump perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it gives me a sense that my life does have some connection to something. And that's an easy connection. It's not, I don't have to go out and try too hard. For Bentham, there wasn't really any difference between the meaning of pleasure and, and happiness. I mean, happiness was a kind of an aggregation of pleasures. Okay. So, um, I mean, he, there's a line with Bentham, which I quote in the book, where he says um, he lists all these different positive emotions, um, joy, fulfillment, satisfaction, happiness, pleasure. And then he says all of these things ultimately come to the same thing because Bentham was just fundamentally uninterested in conceptual, moral and philosophical differences. He thought all those distinctions could do would be to sow ambiguity, doubt, uh, misunderstanding, potential sort of social breakdown when people are kind of are, are using words in different ways. And it's best you just reduce it all to a single thing. And that's what's uh, called monism in, in, mm-hmm. in philosophy. Um, and that's partly what my book is is taking issue with. But, you know, to go back to your example, yes. I mean, so it would be difficult from a Benthamite perspective to, to, I mean, if you liked a piece of candy, it would be difficult to argue that the person who was, you know, eating a, a really nice piece of fresh fish that, you know, had been carefully cooked and so on. Like, it'd be difficult to say that, that one of the pleasures was qualitatively different from the other. They could might be that there was a kind of quantitative difference, but that could obviously, if there was just a quantitative difference, you could just add more and more and more of the candy um, in order to somehow kind of level it out, basically. <laughs> There's only one register of human experience for Bentham, and at the top is is some sort of orgasm, and at the bottom is some kind of, um, you know, like having your fingernails pulled out or right, something. And right. in between is is the rest of of, of human experience, basically. So, um, and I think that's probably what a lot of people in computer science also think, and that yeah. really is, is is where we are right now. Yeah. That's it for Interchange today. You're listening to Motorcycle Emptiness by the Manic Street Preacher. Our show today was Selling Happiness, the fifth in our series, The Way of Neoliberalism. Thanks to our guest, Will Davies, author of The Happiness Industry, How the Government and Big Business Sold Us Well-Being, published by Verso, and The Limits of Neoliberalism, Authority, Sovereignty, and the Logic of Competition. Next time on Interchange scapegoating our cities. Author William Goldsmith argues that America has been in the habit of abusing its cities and their poorest suburbs, which are always the first to be blamed for society's ills and the last to be helped. As federal and state budgets, regulations, and programs line up with the interests of giant corporations and privileged citizens, they impose austerity on cities, shortchange public schools, make it hard to get nutritious food, and inflict the drug war on unlucky neighborhoods. Cities require interdependence and social cohesion, which is in ideological opposition to America's founding myth of individualism and the freedom of wide open spaces, making cities and their inhabitants easy targets for blame when life does not live up to that myth. Scapegoating our cities, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer, and our executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next right here on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.